Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name and God give you thanks for how you are at work in our lives and the lives of your people and, and uh, Lord, you know, hearing the testimonies of how you're dealing with our brothers and sisters, how you're dealing with their hearts. Um, Lord, thank you for using it in our heart, in our life. I uh, thank you for the opportunity for every member to give testimony and be used by you to edify the whole. And we ask that you'd use it to, to keep us focused, to keep us encouraged, uh, to keep us uh, in your exhortation. Lord, today in, in Genesis 23, there are pictures, there are principles, uh, there are truths that we need to know. And again, Lord, we don't want to just know information about your Bible. We want to know you, and we want to hear from you. And so, God, would you take your word, and in the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get into it, I want you to just think about Genesis chapters 21 through 24. We're in chapter 23 this week, but there's a big picture that's being put on display for us. There's a there's a, I mean, in terms of what God is doing with humanity, it's all being laid out and pictured for us uh, in these chapters. And so think about it. In chapter 21, what did we see? Sarah has Isaac. Isaac, we saw, is the child of promise. His life, Isaac is a type of Christ. His life is to picture the life of Christ. Isaac's not a perfect type of Christ. But there are so many, last week we gave you a whole page on Isaac as a type or a picture of Christ. And so when you study his life, you get insight into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, you know, he's a, his birth is a, a supernatural birth. Both Abraham and Sarah, they can't get pregnant physically. They don't have the capacity. But according to the promise of God's word, Isaac comes at the appointed time. So that's chapter 21. And then in chapter 22, we see Abraham's only beloved son, right? The hope of Abraham being made a mighty nation, uh, can't be counted for multitude. Uh, he goes through a death and a resurrection. Let me just frame that in air quotes. For three days, Isaac was dead to him, but then on the third day, God provides himself a sacrifice. So we saw that incredible picture of, it, of substitutionary, uh, this substitutionary work of Calvary where God himself becomes the Lamb of God, and so this Lamb is sacrificed in his place, and at this point, now Isaac is now resurrected in picture, resurrected in type. So that's chapter 22. Here in chapter 23, uh, we see Sarah pass away, and she will be buried with the Gentiles. Sarah is a picture or type of the nation of Israel, of Jerusalem, and what happens next after Sarah dies and is buried with the Gentiles. Well, next time in, in, in Genesis chapter 24, Isaac is gonna take a bride. Okay, so what is that picture? What is that showing us? If Isaac is a type of Christ, okay, Israel produces her Messiah. The Genesis 3.15 prophecy finally comes into physical, visible reality. Christ is born of Israel, but Israel rejects her Messiah, and after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, um, what happens next? Well, by 70 AD, Israel 
is scattered, Israel is dispersed, she's buried amongst the Gentiles, what else happens? Well, Christ takes a bride. Uh, Christ, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he takes a bride, it's the church. So if Isaac's a type of Christ, and I mean, here it is, this is the key verse that we'll see next time in Genesis 24, 67. Um, We're gonna look in, in chapter 24 at Eleazar's camel train. Uh, on a mission to get a bride for Isaac. Isaac brings her into his mother's tent. Says Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, Sarah's tent, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Watch this now. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here's Isaac. If he's a type of Christ, consider how the church age is supposed to be this great comfort for Jesus after Israel's rejection of Christ as Messiah, after Israel's burial, right, in 70 AD, Titus comes, I mean, just sacks Jerusalem. Israel as a nation is disbanded. Israel as a nation, she's buried in the Gentile nations. What did Christ do? Christ takes a bride, that's what he's been doing over the last 2,000 years, and this is comfort for him. So that begs this question be put on this floor. You as a part of the bride of Christ, your life, is it comfort to the Lord Jesus? Does your life please the bridegroom? Uh, Rebecca, she is brought to, to Isaac's tent and there Isaac is comforted after his mother's death. What was it? It's taking this bride, her being with him. And man, there's like great insight for marriage relationships, husbands. Wives, what do your husbands want? They want you to be with them. Uh, it's a big deal. Guys, it's a big part of how we relate. You know, guys just, they just kind of can be together. Uh, guys will go hunting, and they may say five words all day, but they had a great time. Why? Because they were together in some endeavor. Uh, they'll work on a car or something. Very little conversation. They're just together, right? Um, being with your, being his friend, being with him, it's a big comfort. Well, so also, in terms of our relationship with the Lord, uh, Christ, at least as a talker, we have his word, <laughs> you know? So that provision, he's a mature man, so that provi- provision is made for his bride. Uh, plenty of communication, but what's gonna please his heart? Uh, your heart with him, being with him. What a comfort that is to the Lord Jesus. Okay, verse one, let's break it down. Genesis chapter 23, verse one, we're gonna see Abraham's grief. And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So she's 127 years old. And if we do the math, that's gonna put Isaac at 37 years of age at the time of Sarah's death, no more than than 38. Uh, How do we know this? Well, Genesis 17, 17, Abraham's laughing, said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, that is 90 years old, bear? So at 90 is the promise within that year. So she's 90, 91 at the most, that makes That makes Isaac 37, 38 at the most. You say, wow, I mean, in the next chapter he gets a wife. He's kind of a late bloomer. Um, Is there 
You know, is he a slow developer? Is he is this failure to launch? You know, what's going on here? <coughs> Isaac's going to live for a very long time. Okay, so he's he's right on time. But notice Abraham's response to his loss. The text says that he came uh, to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Uh, Abraham's love for Sarah it was very deep. It was very real. This word "mourn" in your Bible. Uh, It's a big word. It means to tear the hair and beat the breasts. Uh, This is historically how Oriental people groups would respond in great grief. It means to lament. By implication, it means to wail. You're expressing your grief physically through wailing, through lamentation, through mourning. The word weep means to bemoan, to bewail. It means to complain. Uh, to make lamentation sore. It means to shed tears, to weep. Why is Abraham, I mean, he's an old man and he's mourning. Now, I know this is the typical male life cycle. Uh, As a baby, you know, crying over everything as maturity comes on, especially as you come into a young man, crying is felt to be a sign of weakness. And then you've got the young man years the last thing I'm gonna do, so help me God, I'd rather die than cry, and then, and then by the time they're a grandparent, you know, they're bawling over kitty cat memes. You know, it's just, that's, uh, that's, that's the, typical, the typical cycle. Okay, why is he mourning? Sarah was very dear to him. She was his princess. Remember the name Sarah means princess. What he has lost, he's lost his partner in life. She is the one that together, this child of promise, uh, they receive him from the Lord. And so get this down in your notes. Proper mourning with weeping and crying, with wailing, right? This is the mark of maturity in the life of the believer. It is proper, it is needful to mourn when the circumstances demand it. As a matter of fact, it's needful for proper mental health. You know, as a young man, I went through that stereotypical cycle. Um, you know, by the time I'm, I'm up in high school, my position would have been that of every other guy that I knew. If a, if a man is crying, that makes him a, what's the word? Crybaby, right? Because babies cry. Men don't cry, babies cry. And so, you know, that's just, that's just where I was at. And, and so the last, you, you know, if I, I mean, I have a Franken finger. I don't know if you can see it, this middle finger. I would hold it up by itself, but then there would be memes. Okay, so, I mean, people are cutting frames and making all kinds of stuff, and so I gotta be careful. So it's a Franken finger right here, and, and uh, it got smashed off in the tractor, and all I said was, oh, 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 And then uh, when it come out, you know, it's like flopping, hanging down like this, off a skin tag, you know, there's my fingers doing this, and I'm like, how am I gonna write? How am I gonna do my schoolwork, Dad? And he's like, don't worry about that. Let's get that finger soap back on. I mean, I was just like, that, that's, uh, that's how men are supposed to respond, you know? Okay, so I get older, I grow up, now I'm married. Next thing I know, I'm pastoring. And I remember, uh, oh man, you know, anytime I'd cry, it would be just ugly. I mean, just ugly. And uh, can't breathe. <laughs> like, my. My eyes, I can't see, snot everywhere. I mean, just uh, just ugly thing. I'd gone on a missions trip and I was really burdened about the need and the nation that I visited and I'm back 
communicating this burden to the college class. I was the pastor of the college ministry at the Kansas City Baptist Temple and I'm trying to communicate this and while I'm doing it, it gets me totally in the feels and next thing I know I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no, here it comes. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) you know, I'm trying to communicate and I just, I mean, snot and tears and it's hot and I'm just sweating and it's just, it's so ugly, you know, and and, uh, and, that, and that's just kind of where I was at as a young man. And as I've grown, I've recognized, you know what, there's some things worth crying about. And um, tears aren't shameful, they're, they're necessary. Uh, they're, they're, they're necessary. Get this down in your notes. Your mourning should meet the measure of your loss. The level of your mourning should be at the level of your loss. Okay, let's say your plant dies. Uh, that's not worth having a, an emotional hissy fit over. Just get another plant. I mean, I get it. It was special to you. Somebody gave it to you. Uh, maybe you'll shed a tear. But, but I mean, at some point, uh, that, 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 that should, you should be able to get past that. A hangnail. You should be able to get past that with very little, very little emotional grief. The loss of a child. Oh, my goodness. Whale. Whale. If, 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 some, if, if somebody came to me and said, your son was just killed in an auto accident, you're not going to tell me it's going to be okay. You're not gonna be able to tell me I don't have anything to cry about, okay? Uh, there will be a short season where I will be inconsolable. The level of my loss will have to be expressed in grief. There will be wailing. Well, you haven't lost him. Buck up, man, you haven't lost that kid. Uh, that's, just a, that's just a see you later, it's a goodbye. You know, we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have faith or not? Um, you know, at the end of the day, the believer doesn't mourn. We don't grieve like the lost world grieves. We know that those that are in Christ, we never lose them. We just, it, it's a, you know, we don't, we have a comfort, we have a promise, we have an assurance that the lost world doesn't have. Uh, it's see you later, it's not goodbye. At the level of your loss, it's appropriate to grieve. It's needful to grieve. You tell me that my son was killed in an auto accident, there's going to be wailing and mourning. Why? Well, because that child is precious to me. If, if Cheryl turned around on me tomorrow and passed away for some reason, I've already informed her. Um, I, you know, when I get to the anger stage of grief, the anger stage of grief, the anger stage of grief. I don't know why that's a tongue twister. When I get, you know, the stages of grief, when I get to the level of anger, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna pee on your grave. <laughs> you do that to me, do not die on me. I will, at some point, I will pee on your grave. I'll be so mad that you abandoned me. I'm gonna pee on your grave. I, I know it's not right. I'm just telling you, that's, that's where I'm at. I know it's messed up. Pray for me, I need to grow and mature. I was telling, uh, I, was t- I was saying that to her one time. You know, my philosophy is, is wives should bury their husbands. Husbands shouldn't bury their wives. I'm selfish like that. That's where I'm at, at least in my home. Okay, so I was telling Cheryl that, like, don't you die on me. I, I need you, <laughs> you know. I said, I, you know, you die on me. When I, I, I get to the anger stage, I'm going to come pee on your grave. And Levon says, I'll go with you. <laughs> Her mom said she, she would join me uh, peeing on Cheryl's grave. <laughs> Uh, we'd take turns. We'd make sure it's copacetic. <laughs> uh, Cheryl dies on me. I'm, man, I am grieving. Now, here's the deal. 
you can tell yourself that you're a big enough deal, you're, you've got some view of maturity that you, know, you don't have to grieve, you don't have to cry, you suffer a grave level of loss, you will actually eventually cope. You're gonna be able to move forward. Why? Well, because that's how God built us. That's how he designed us. Uh, what am I talking about? What's true of us spiritually is true of us physically. How many in this room have had a zit? Nobody wants to raise their hands. Like, what? The, this guy's gross today. Everybody's had one. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. What is a zit? Well, there's some contaminant, contaminant that's in you that your body recognizes and says, well, this isn't supposed to be here, so what does it do? It walls it off to protect you. And then it just starts building the goo that will put the pressure on that contaminant to express it out of your body. And sometimes, you know, a contaminant gets in there and it's like it's got roots and it won't let go. And the next thing you know, you've got a goiter the size of Texas on the, on the side of your face, you know? I mean, it's just like, what is happening? It'd be like a bad tooth. You get a bad tooth, it gets an infection. Man, that can be dangerous. What's your body doing? It's walling off that infection to protect you. And, uh, you know, don't mess with your teeth. You get an infection in a tooth, that gets in your bloodstream. That's too close to your brain bucket, right? Uh, these, the, what, what's your body trying to do? It's trying to protect you from this contaminant. It's trying to wall it off. Some people will have pockets of infection in them and they'll go for years just fine. And then some trauma, something happens and that, and that wall of protection, that membrane breaks and now all of a sudden, they're in ICU fighting for their life because they went septic because that, in, that, 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 that infection got loose in their system and now they're fighting for their lives. Uh, it, the, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Your body does that so that you can keep going, so that you can keep surviving, that you have a shot at thriving. Well, emotionally, the same thing can happen. Uh, you have a, a point of catastrophe, a point of loss in your life. Uh, you have the ability mentally to wall this stuff off and that, that's just you trying to protect you so you can keep going, so you can keep surviving. And this is why people, you know, they think they're fine. And then something happens, man. I mean, it's like the perfect combination of events and it don't even have to make sense. You're just, you're just going through life and somebody closed the door in such a way that it reminded you of something, that reminded you of something else. And the next thing you know, you're right back there at that place of loss and you've just, the pimple pops. <laughs> And, and now there's a, this, this massive mess of grief that you didn't want to deal with is being dealt with. Uh, it's, it's appropriate to grieve at the level of your loss. So for you and I today, how do we help God's people grieve? How do we, how do we help others grieve? How do we help them in their grief? You know, one thing that people intuitively want to do is they want to tell people how to feel when they're grieving or how you feel in their grieving or how, how you went through a time of grief and this is what helped you. And, and let me just say this to the person that's grieving, when you come in, here's how we fix all this. I know you're hurting, but here's what you need to know and here's what you'll need to do and everything will be just fine. That is obnoxious, okay, super obnoxious. Because no matter what you say, no matter what your experience was, uh, they're going through their grief. Well, then what do I do? If I can't fix it, what do I do? Well, the Bible tells you what to do. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. 
man, that's a skill that we all need to learn. When somebody is truly blessed, they're truly rejoicing over something, um, a mark of immaturity is, is, why is that you? I deserve that rejoice. And you'll try to downplay the reason to rejoice. Man, I got this massive raise at work. And you're like, I'm gonna use a raise at work. <laughs> no, rejoice with them. Like that is, that, that, if you would just decide to agree with the Bible when somebody's like uber blessed and you're like, how come nothing like that ever happens to me? <laughs> well, there's probably reasons for that. But anyway, they're uber blessed. The, the pathway to blessing for you is to rejoice with them. Just jump in with them and, and jump and dance. If, they're not, if it's something worth jumping and dancing and shouting about and they're like, well, this thing kind of happened and bro, they need help. Just get them jumping and laughing and dancing. They need to rejoice in the Lord over what he's doing in their life. The same thing's true when people are hurting. The Bible says weep with them that weep. That's what you do. You're not there to fix it. You're not there to make it go away. No, what did the Bible say in Romans chapter eight? What does God do with all things? He works all things to get, I mean, even the rough stuff, man. God's perfection, maturity, right? Biblical maturity, the word there is perfect, not like flawless um, uh, perfection the way we think of it. Uh, No, God brings us into maturity through suffering. Uh, That's how we we learn. Uh, God's working that, even those catastrophic times, he's gonna work it all together for good. And people who lose loved ones, especially those that are lost in the Lord, uh, God will bring them to the place where they know, where they recognize it's not a goodbye, it's a see you later. And they'll get that, eventually they'll come to that place of peace in their heart. They may know it intellectually up front, but the grief has to be worked through. And the best thing that you can do for a brother or sister that's hurting is just weep with them. You say, well, you know, I'm a hard man, pastor. I don't know how to cry. I'm too tough to do it. So you may need some coaching. And so get this down in your notes. You need to learn empathy. Learn empathy. What's empathy, said the psychopath. Well, okay, what's empathy? What you need to do is you need to just start putting yourself in this person's place. For some people, that's a learned, that's a learned uh, concept, it's a learned behavior. But put yourself where that grieving person's at. Trade places with them. That's what Job's three friends did. In Job chapter two, verse 11, You know, Job lost everything, man. I mean, he's hurting. He's hurting in his heart. He's hurting emotionally. He's hurting physically. Lost his health, lost his family. I mean, he's hurting. How do his friends help him? Job chapter two, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came everyone from his own place. All of his friends come together. Look at what verse 11 says. They made an appointment together to do what? To come tell Job how he needed to view how you need, now that eventually came. But for days, all they're doing is weeping with him. They made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And that's what they did, man. They came and they just sat with him. For days, they just sat, nothing. They're just hurting with Job. Jesus sets the example in John chapter 11. You know, when Jesus is telling the disciples, we gotta go see Lazarus, uh, he, he just tells them flatly, you know, he's dead. And there's no weeping, there's no crying. John eleven thirty one 31 says, the Jews when, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, 
that, ro- that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her saying, she goeth out into the grave to weep there. What are they doing? They're gonna go with her, they're gonna help her. In Oriental custom, biblical uh, history, biblical society, you have an understanding of this concept. When you lose greatly, you need to wail, you need to grieve. You need to get in the shower, you need to turn it up, and you just need to let the snot flow, man. I mean, you gotta, you gotta do this. And so you'd have people that would come, and their whole job is to, is to get you grieving, because you might just be still in shock. You might still be just flabbergasted over what all's happening. You know, when you're going through the initial trauma of loss, there's a lot of grace, there's a lot of help, the way the body uh, even emotionally is designed. It's so that you can get through these tough things, but at some point, you gotta, you gotta let that go in grief. You gotta let that go in sorrow, in weeping, in mourning. And so why, these, these are wise cultures. They would say, this person needs help, and we're gonna go and we're gonna get them bawling. <laughs> we're gonna get them grieving. Uh, we're gonna get them talking about it, and, and when they're talking about it, we'll start wailing with them. Jesus, verse 33, therefore saw her weeping. He saw her hurt. And the Jews also weeping, which came with her. These are the professional mourners, right? He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Before, it's like, Lazarus is dead, we gotta go. Now he's groaning in his spirit, he's troubled, and said, where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Uh, Luke, or John, John 11, verse 35 is one of the most popular verses in the Bible for Bible memory competitions. You can memorize it in a second. It's a way to get a verse under your belt. But wow, what instruction in those two words. Here is the Lord himself weeping with those that weep. He is empathizing with her. He's not dead, he, you know, it's not, it's, it's, Lazarus isn't in his family, um, right? He's not a close relation to him, but now he's weeping over, his, over this loss. What's he doing? He's empathizing. I had a friend uh, not too long ago, we were talking and he was telling me about the hurt that came with his son being in prison. And uh, you know, man, I don't have any, any, any of my children in prison, but immediately, uh, with, with, I mean, in a heartbeat, I'm weeping with this brother over the hurt of a family member being incarcerated and what that's done in his life, how that's hurt him, and, 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 and now I'm, he's weeping and I'm weeping. Well, what are you bawling for, Sam? Why are you crying? You don't have any children in jail. Why was I in that place? Because in a moment, I'm thinking about my son, Seth, and what would happen if he made wrong choices and he had wrong relationships and one thing's inexorably leading to another and he doesn't turn back and, and the only way God's gonna get his attention is he's gotta go to jail and I gotta see my son behind prison bars. What does that do to my heart? Oh God, <laughs> I'm so sorry. In other words, I. I can empathize, I can put myself in the place of that person, I don't have to say anything, I don't have to do anything to fix it, I can just join my brother and shed tears with him. And what an encouragement, you can join in, in, in the sorrow, in the hurting of other people through empathy. 
Uh, put yourself in their position and the tears will come. And this is precious to the Lord. The Bible says that God, I don't know how he does it, I don't know what the mechanism is, but, he, but somehow he's catching all your tears. I mean, as they're evaporating, there's some spiritual mechanical device that he's catching them. Like, I think every believer probably has some spiritual apparatus over them that's constantly keeping a tally of the number of hairs on your head, and if you shed a tear, God catches it because he's bottling it. Like, you are literally probably gonna get access and be able to see, I mean, some of you ball bags, there's gonna be a vat of tears just waiting for, did I say a bad word? I'm sorry, some of you who are more emotionally in tune, there'll be a vat of tears just, man, how amazing is that? This is precious to the Lord when you can enter into the fellowship of a brother's suffering, a sister's suffering. Does that make sense? Uh, Lord teach us. Okay, Sarah's grave, verse three. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of thy sight. My wife needs to be buried among the Gentiles. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord. Thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulcher but that thou mayest bury thy dead. He's got favor with this culture, with these people. They're gonna help him in his grief. Verse seven, and Abraham stood up and bowed himself unto the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat, me for, uh, and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he hath, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a bearing place amongst you. Here's an empty cave. It's gonna be a sepulcher for his family. He's not using it. Um, Abraham probably knew about it. And so he's like, this would be an ideal situation for me to begin burying my family. Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my Lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people I give it thee. Bury thy dead. Oh, Abraham, you're saying you want to buy this cave from me. No, 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 no. Not just the cave, the field that it's in. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you that field. I'm giving you that cave. Man, you're hurting, bro. Bury your wife, okay? You can have it. There's no, no, no purchase as necessary. Bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. Watch his wisdom here, verse 13. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, but if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me. I was only trying to buy the cave, but I'll buy the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, my Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth 400, okay, now we're getting down to it. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. Okay, fine. You know, this, you didn't have to do that, but that's fine. 400 shekels of silver. So, there, bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and, Ab- and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he, Ephron, had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of sil- silver, current a current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, 
which was before Mamre in the field and the cave which was therein and all the trees that were in the field and that were in all the borders round about were made sure. So they measured it out. All of it now becomes Abraham's possession. Unto Abraham, it's made sure, unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth. The whole society of Heth is witness to this transaction before all that went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. The same is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. Uh, Just a few points I want us to take from this passage before we dismiss today. Number one, look at verse four. When Abraham comes to bury his dead, he starts with a statement of faith up front. In verse four, he testifies before the lost world that he's a stranger and a sojourner. Sojourner is your next blank. And that's the right perspective, man. I mean, I mean, he's getting ready to buy a field from this Gentile, this unbeliever, right? He's getting ready to buy a field from him and his statement up front is, is this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Even though this land was all already given to him. He's getting ready to buy land that God had already given to him. So what's his perspective? Man, it's the right perspective. He's a sojourner. Hebrews chapter 11 verse nine says, by faith he, Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. This is the place that God promised to lead him to in Genesis chapter 12. This world's not my home is Abraham's perspective. Dwelling in tabernacles, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. The heir is with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Uh, man, that's the right perspective. We, uh, you know, it was uh, several weeks ago that I asked you to pray for us. That Cheryl and I are just trusting God to lead, guide, and direct us. And, and would you pray for us because we got a big decision to make. We're considering the care of our mother-in-law and, and how would we best do that and, and you guys prayed for us and, and the long and the short of that is God did lead, guide and direct us and, and we ended up putting our house on the market and, and we ended up being led to another property and we bought that with the sale of the, the first house and I say all that to say this, moving is terrible. It is the worst. I mean, it is the worst. I mean, like, like house purgatory is a, like a thing, okay? Like it's just miserable and then you're in boxes and you're trying to get a house ready to sell and then you buy a house. We kind of bought a little bit of a fixer upper and, and there's gonna be all that work to do there and we gotta get a room ready for Levon and all that. And so my perspective on home ownership has changed over these last several weeks. I've, I've told a number of people, man, it's all tense. I can't wait till Jesus comes with a U-Haul and moves us to Mount Zion. This world is not my home. I am just a sojourner, right? I'm just passing through. Well, you know what? God promises those that serve into his kingdom will rule with him. Christ is coming back to earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. Uh, man, what an incredible thing. Now, I'm just renting here, bro. I'm just, I'm just here for a moment in time. And that's Abraham, how he positions himself before the lost world. This, this land that God gave to him, I, you know, I'm just renting. So he buys this cave near Mamre, point number two. Near Mamre, 
Ur's not his home anymore. Canaan is now Abraham's new home. And so that means Sarah has to be buried there, not in Ur. Sarah's from Ur. Well, no, we're not going back to the old place. No, Abraham is now occupying the land. More importantly, he's occupying the instruction, the promises of God over his life. With that, he's not presumptuous. Hey, y'all, God gave me all this land, so cough up the cave. No, that's not how he presents himself. In faith, he buys the land, taking nothing from them. Here's Abraham, he's rich in silver and gold. We know that from Genesis 13 too. He can easily pay for the field. And so he doesn't take advantage over Ephron. He doesn't even tell him, by the way, bro, your cave is not your cave, it's actually mine, God gave it to me. Y'all are just squatting on my, no. This is all God's deal, this is God's problem. I need a place to bury my wife, so I'm gonna pay my own way. That's his position. To take the cave would have been a mistake. Because then from Ephron's perspective, Abraham would now owe him, right? If he took that from this unbeliever, now the unbeliever is gonna have advantage. Ephron would be able to say that Abraham took advantage of him, and so now Abraham owes him. So Abraham doesn't want that. He wants it to be a clean business deal so that, so that the value of the property was paid so that it's by rights his to bury his dead in. Third John chapter seven gives the same principle because that for his namesake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. I won't even, hey, from the lost world, I'm not even looking for benevolence even in my need, right? As believers, we'll give benevolence to one another. But with the lost world, we don't want them to say or to think that we're somehow taking advantage of them. We can't do that. Genesis chapter 14, we see Abraham already understood this principle. You remember Abraham and his ninjas went after these armies and rescued Lot and the citizens of Sodom and, and they bring them back and the king says to, to Abram, give me the persons, all the cash you keep. And Abraham's response to the king of Sodom is, is no, I'm not gonna take a thread, verse 23, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet and that I will not take anything that is thine lest thou shouldest say I have made Abram rich. Let the guys who did the work, let them have a sandwich let them take a portion for their time, wages for their efforts, right? Let them take their portion, but you keep it, king. I'm not taking any, so get this down in your notes. We shouldn't be in this world with an attitude or desire to see what we can strip mine from it, okay? Our, our focus can't be on what we take from the lost world. No, it has to be to minister to it. So the believer's focus is not on what we take from the lost world, but what we can give to the lost world. Do you see that principle? We don't want the lost world to be saying about Christians, these guys are always looking to take advantage of us. See, our need, God promises to supply it. In Matthew chapter six and verse 30, God's, God's example is, look, I take care of the grass of the field. How much more am I gonna take care of you? Where's your faith, right? Verse 31 says, therefore take no thought, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles, do the Gentiles seek. They're looking to strip mine the earth for their benefit. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. So here's what we do. Let's just be busy serving the Lord. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need, food, clothing, provision, shall be added unto you. 
And that was Abraham's attitude. What my need, God will supply. So I don't have to get my supply. The lost world doesn't have to supply. That I'm gonna trust the Lord for it. Now, number three, notice that all Abraham wanted was the cave. Well, the cave was the, because it's in this area where the bed are being, the dead, the bed, the dead are being buried, bed. The dead are being buried. Uh, this cave's got some value. It's a sepulcher is how it's gonna be used, and so that's the big deal on this property. Well, without, if, he, if Abraham buys the cave, from Ephraim's standpoint, it's like, well, why do I have the field? So he wants to sell the whole thing, okay? So all he wanted, all that Abraham wanted was the cave, but Ephraim wants to sell the whole thing, and so he very slickly maneuvers Abraham. He's like, uh, uh, you know, sell me the cave. No, 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 you can have the cave and the field. And Abraham's like, oh, okay, here we go. So what's it worth? It's worth 400 pieces of silver. Okay, bought the whole thing. But now this becomes the burial place of Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Sarah, Jacob, Leah. Fast forward a few thousand years and it becomes a Muslim possession. As a matter of fact, a mosque was built over this cave, over this sepulcher. Uh, a few years ago on our Israel discovery trip, we do a LFBI hosts an Israel trip um, with uh, the COVID problems and you know all of that. We've been on hold for a few years, but Lord willing, this next year uh, we'll be taking another study trip to Israel. And so you know I don't know. We'll see you know with inflation and gas what that ends up costing, but, but you ought to have that on your bucket list. If you can go with us to Israel sometime, uh, what incredible insight that that will give you in your Bible study. It's a, it's a wonderful study. So we go to this place, we go to Hebron, we go to the burial place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, what, a, what a, just a, a dreary place it is today. Uh, very, you, you, like it was one of the places in Israel where I could feel spiritual oppression, you know. It was a, it was a very dreary place. Uh, verse 19, so anyway, all of the trip is not dreary. Put it in your bucket list. If you can, come with us to Israel. Uh, it'll make your Bible come alive. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful investment in your Bible education. Okay, verse 19, real quick. Abraham buries his wife. And you just need to know, this is biblically, this is the typical pattern. Believers bury their dead. Why? Because burial in your Bible is likened to sleep. Uh, a Christian believer, when they pass, biblically, because the body will resurrect, uh, the terminology is they're asleep. First um, Corinthians 15, verse 51, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's New Testament terminology for pass away. We won't all pass away, but we shall all be changed. There's a generation that when Christ comes for the church, they won't, there'll literally be a whole generation of believers that never know physical death. Uh, not all sleep, but we will all be changed, okay? How? Well, biblically, burial is like planting a seed. And so if you go back to verse 35, people ask the question, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? What kind of body do people have in the resurrection? Paul says, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And, and here's what you need to understand. I mean, this is why his response is so strong. Thou fool. Paul's so gentle when people ask questions. 
thou fool, don't you understand how burial and resurrection works? If you plant a kernel of corn in the ground, you don't get a big kernel of corn out of the ground. There is a body that's buried, it has one glory. The body that comes out of the ground is of a whole higher order, it's of a whole higher glory, it's an order of magnitude greater in glory. You put a corn seed in the ground but a stalk comes up. Okay, that's how it works. So also the resurrection. You've got celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. They're different in terms of order of magnitude. In death, the believer's body, it's sown a terrestrial body, but in the resurrection, it's celestial. It's like the glory of the sun versus the glory of the moon or the glory of the stars. Uh, That's how the resurrection works. Watch this, verse 43. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it's sown (coughs) a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So historically, believers have buried their dead because it's a statement of faith that this that's sown in corruption and death will raise an incorruption and uh, eternal life. It's a statement, burial is a statement of faith and the bodily resurrection at Christ's second coming. That's why believers historically have buried their dead, not cremated them. Now, I just said all of that and there's a bunch of people that are like, Aunt May was a believer and we cremated her. What have we done? There is no biblical admonition against cremation. Okay, I'm just telling you historically what Christians have done as a statement of faith. Okay, heathen cultures historically have cremated. Christian, right, the Christian church, what they've done is they bury because they say it's asleep, the body will resurrect. How many burials over the millennia have produced exactly the same results as a crematorium. I mean, even the bones are broken down into dust. Uh, Man, that ain't nothing but a thing, chicken wing for the Lord God Almighty, okay? I mean, he's got the DNA sample he needs to have an incorruptible, immortal body at the resurrection. There is no place in the Bible that says it's sin to cremate or what. So here's what we've discovered in, in these last days. Uh, Cremation is cheaper. (laughs) Or Aunt May's like, spread my ashes all over the Southwest R5 school district. Do it at night so nobody knows, or whatever. You know, like, I want my ashes buried at sea, or I want my ashes buried under that tree. I want my ashes buried in this park. You know, this is like, they, they do that, and okay, yeah, hey, it's no big deal. That is nothing for the Lord. Um, Just, you need to know what the picture is, because, I mean, believers in the ground, well that's just another seed in the garden. One day at the last trump, the trump will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. First Thessalonians chapter four, praise the Lord, amen? So I'd like us to bow our heads, I'd like us to humble our hearts before the Lord. And as we close, how many would say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm, man, I'm going through a time of mourning. Or I've got somebody in my life that's going through a time of great mourning, great grief. Would you pray for me? I want to help. I want to mourn properly. I want to I be used of the Lord to bring comfort uh, in the life of another believer. Would you pray for me? Can I see your hands? Is there anybody like that? Is there anybody that would say, Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Um, I've got, uh, 
you know, the, the, the seed of my physical body, I don't know that it'll be transformed when Christ returns. I, I've got I've to get it straight in my life. I'm not sure that I know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Pastor, would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that? I'm not sure that I'm saved. I don't know that I'm going to heaven to spend eternity with Christ when I die. Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Is there anyone like that in this service? Okay. Anybody else? Please pray for me. I don't know that I'm born again. I don't know that Jesus dwells in my heart. Is there anyone else? Let me see your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, pray for me. I need to be right in my dealings with the lost world. I don't want the lost world looking at me anymore saying, this guy's been taking advantage of me. This gal's been ripping me off. I want the lost world to know that I'm here to serve them. I'm here to love them. I'm here to reach them with the gospel. Would you pray for me? Is there anybody like that in this service? Okay. Anybody else? Yep. Okay, so Father, you see us. You see where we're at. Uh, Lord, so many, uh, we're, we're helping, we're dealing with grieving people, or we're grieving ourselves. Lord, help us to not shy away from our need to grieve at the level of our loss or to even enter into the grief of another person. We wanna be used by you as a source of comfort, that, that the grieving would see, that, that you see, you know they're hurt because uh, we're, you've got us there grieving with them. Lord, for the young man that says, I'm not sure that I'm saved, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. God, give him boldness to just talk to a youth leader about Christ. Lord, let the enemy be bound. The, the reasons for, for not considering salvation, uh, Lord, would you help him to see that's, that's just satanic lies, the devil trying to get him to put off his need for you in his life. And then, Lord, for all of us, Help the lost world to see that we love them, that you love them, because we're not taking advantage of them. Uh, we're upright in our dealing with them. Lord, help them to see we're here to serve, we're here to help them. Um, Lord, we wanna be upright in our dealings with them. And so Lord, help us to, help us to be a people of integrity. Uh, we don't want anybody in the lost world to look at us and say that we've ripped them off somehow. And so, Lord, help us to be careful for your name, your testimony over our life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.